Uh, We continue our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, We are advancing steadily through to the end of the doctrine of the church, having covered the nature of the church and the sacraments generally, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, We come now to the subject of church censures, church censures, chapter 30 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is a a short section, which is good because we only have about 27 minutes, uh, but that's all right. We have four paragraphs with four questions that we need to answer. The first is, who governs the church? Secondly, what power do church officers hold? Thirdly, why are church censures necessary? And fourthly, how should censures be administered? And if you're wondering, what on earth is a censure Don't worry, we're going to get there. Uh, They're not the incense censors, different censure. First, who governs the church? The Westminster Confession of Faith says, paragraph 1, the Lord Jesus as king and head of his church hath therein appointed a government in the hand of the church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. Magistrate just means government. I know we're in an American context. We don't really use that word, but magistrate, civil government. First, we believe that the church is governed by the Lord Jesus. Uh, He is the only head and king of his church. And this, as I've said before, this document exists in a a historical and polemical context. Who's the opponent being uh, addressed here? Well, it's two. You have the Roman Catholic Church, and then later it's going to get at what are called the Erastians. And I'll explain who those are when we get there. But to begin with... Uh, The Roman Catholic Church maintains that Peter, as the first pope, uh, was appointed by Christ to be head of the church, and that that power of headship uh, was given from Peter to each apostolic successor after him uh, to be head of the church. And so who's the head of the church in the Roman Catholic Church? Visibly on earth, it's the pope. Well, the Reformed Confession comes out and says the Lord Jesus as king and head of his church. That's who the head of the church is. Not the Pope, uh, but the Lord Jesus himself. And uh, this is evident by Scripture. Isaiah prophesied concerning Christ himself. For to us is a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government, that's the important word, the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it goes on of the increase of his government And of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what will the Lord do? He will put the government of the kingdom of God on the Messiah, that is on Jesus himself. And if that's too much and too confusing, just take Jesus' words himself. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's very straightforward. The head of the church is Jesus Christ himself. Now, as head and king of the church, Jesus has appointed a government. He has not abandoned us uh, to anarchy, uh, but he provides for his church that which is absolutely necessary for our flourishing. I like what uh, Shaw says on this, Robert Shaw. He says, no human society can subsist without government. How absurd then to suppose that the church of Christ, that most perfect of all societies, has been left by her king destitute of what is essential to the very being 
of society. We, we see that nothing in this world runs well without a form of government. And so are we truly to believe that Jesus has abandoned his church to have no government whatsoever? It would be ruinous to us as an organization. Well, nature then therefore speaks to the need for government in the church, and reason does as well. We know that all churches follow some form of government. Some are more aware of the form of government that they have. Some are more uh, public about the form of government they have. But we all, every church, has a form of government. Some are very simple. Some are more complex. But all churches follow some form of government. And each church will plead that their form of government is based on the Bible. Well, if each church does this, if each church has a form of government and pleads that that form of government is from the Bible, then it seems highly probable uh, that the Bible does in fact prescribe some form of government. And so when we broadly consider church history, we see that there are a variety of forms of church government uh, throughout history. There is uh, really three general forms. There is a hierarchical form of government. This is used in Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, and Eastern Orthodoxy. You have a, a succession of ranks from low to high, and the people that are higher up have more power and more authority than the people who are lower down. It's sort of like the army or the, you know, the GS schedule for the church. There's a hierarchy uh, of government. Well, then there is a congregational form of government. This is used largely by Baptists and non-denominational churches. That's common. We're probably pretty familiar with that. And then there is a representative form of government. Uh, And this is the view held by most Reformed and Presbyterian churches uh, where we have uh, representative elders uh, and they are in charge of, uh, of governing the church. This is the view of the Confession of Faith when it says uh, that Christ hath therein appointed government in the hands of church officers. And so most commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, they were Presbyterian, and they held, therefore, to a form of government that was representative in nature. Uh, but there was a significant uh, minority of members who held to other forms of government. Uh, there were the Episcopal uh, folks. They had a, a hierarchical view of church government, and there were even independent congregationalists uh, in the Westminster Assembly. And all of these would have unanimously rejected the idea that the Pope is the head of the church. They All of them would have affirmed that Jesus, as uh, Lord and King and head of his church, uh, has the government of his church. Uh, uh, all, all of them would have affirmed that Christ appointed a government, but not all of them would have agreed that this government was entirely distinct from the civil magistrate. So if the first part of this first paragraph rejects the notion that Peter and his successors, the popes through history, are the head of the church. They say, no, Christ is the head of the church. The end of this paragraph is saying that this government is distinct from the civil magistrate. And this is what I mentioned before. There are the Roman Catholics that are being addressed in the first half. In the second half, it is this group uh, called the Erastians. Uh, some of the commissioners, even actually the, the prolocutor, sort of the, the presiding officer of the Westminster Assembly, probably held this view of Erastianism, uh, which is basically the idea uh, that the church is subordinate uh, to the civil government. And so they would argue God has ordained civil government and the church is subordinate to that civil government, at least in certain areas such as church discipline, as we'll deal with today. Well, the Presbyterians 
in good uh, vigor, they fought vigorously against these Erastian com- uh, commissioners, and by God's grace, they won uh, the day. Uh, you could imagine, you know, relatively speaking, the, uh, during the time of the Westminster Assembly, there was, the, the assembly itself was called by Parliament uh, to study uh, the doctrines of the 39 Articles and to revise them into something more reformed uh, thoroughly. Uh, and so the, the, the government themselves had called uh, the Westminster Assembly. It was actually a pretty godly government in that respect. They wanted to encourage right and biblical thinking. But the problem is you don't always have a good and biblical government. You don't always have a godly government. You can imagine today if your government were to tell you what you were to believe about the Bible, uh, how well that would go over. Uh, You can imagine uh, them choosing uh, who will be your pastor or where you'll go to church and how you'll worship God. Uh, And you can imagine how well that would go under our current government. And then you realize that this is actually largely what happened across most of Europe and most of the state churches that held to this view in most of the world have gone completely liberal. So this is not, it would seem, a good way of governing the church. How quickly the Reformation really traded. You know, they rejected the, the Pope as being the head of the church, but in that power vacuum they basically traded the Pope for whoever their local prince was, uh, and sometimes that didn't work out so great. The Bible plainly shows us that elders govern the church. The apostle Paul, he preached, uh, and the people of God were gathered through the preaching of the word, and then he sent Timothy and Titus. You read of this in Acts and throughout the epistles, and what are Timothy and Titus doing? They're going back through, or they're being left behind to appoint elders uh, to govern the local congregations. Titus 1.5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in the, every town as I directed. First Timothy 5.22, uh, do not be hasty in the laying of hands. Second Timothy 2, to what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. And then he gives the qualifications of being an elder, above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor a lover of money, managing his household well, not a recent convert, uh, well thought of, etc. And so as church members, the Bible clearly instructs that you're to, this is where it's practical, you're wondering, what, what do I care about church government? Why, why does it matter to me? Well, it, matters you to, to, it should matter to you because you, you took a vow uh, in this particular congregation, if you're a member, to submit yourself uh, to the governance of this church. And as members under uh, the governance of this church, uh, you are instructed by the Bible uh, to respect, honor, to esteem these officers, your elders. Uh, you're told even in the, uh, the, the book of Hebrews to obey them and to submit to them. Why? Well, because they're keeping watch over your soul. Uh, they're those who have to give account to you uh, of you to God. And so Christ has put this government of his church into the hands of his church officers, not the pope, not princes, but into his church officers. Uh, You know, if you hold position in the the government here in Greenville, that doesn't enable you or allow you at any level uh, to rule over the church. Uh, But in an Erastian model, uh, you would have some authority Uh, by virtue of your civil office. That's not the case in Presbyterian government. We believe the Bible appoints church officers distinct from civil officers 
uh, to rule over the church. Well, what power uh, do these church officers hold? That's kind of important if you're, if you're submitting to uh, the government, government of the church. Uh, you might want to give some consideration uh, to what exactly uh, is the power that that government has over you. And paragraph 2 tells us that to these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins to shut the kingdom of God against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto the penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. So what power do church officers hold? Well, actually, quite a lot. Uh, And for this reason, the qualification for officers is very high, and we are not to be hasty in choosing officers uh, to govern us. Christ has committed the keys of the kingdom of heaven uh, to his officers. Now, Rome is going to maintain that the keys of the kingdom, and what those are we'll talk about in a minute, but Rome is going to maintain that those belong to Peter and the pope following after Peter in succession. Uh, they argue from Matthew 16 when Jesus promises to Peter after, after uh, his confession, uh, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the kings, or I will give you the keys. Uh, and they point out rightly uh, that the you there in Matthew 16 is singular. It is talking specifically to Peter. And so if that's the case, why do we as Protestants believe that these keys are not given to the Pope but to officers on the whole. Well, the reason is because a couple chapters later when Jesus is talking to the apostles on the whole and he is saying the same thing, uh, he refers to the you there is plural. So Jesus is teaching the apostles about excommunication. He says you all uh, is how it would be rendered y'all. And so for this reason, we maintain Uh, that the keys of the kingdom are not given just to Peter or the Pope after him, uh, but to all church officers. We believe Jesus gave it to the apostles as representative officers or elders of the church. And now that the apostolic era has ended, Jesus continues to give the keys of of his church to ordinary elders, officers of his church. Well, what are the powers of these keys? We've been talking about who has the keys of the kingdom. We've maintained that it's the the officers of the church. But what do these keys do? Uh, Jesus defines the powers of these keys in several places. He says to Peter uh, and then to the other apostles in those chapters I just mentioned, Matthew 16 and 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And binding and loosing now, those are legal terms. We're not familiar with them. We don't use them anymore. Uh, But they refer uh, to uh, people, properties, debts uh, that were declared either as retained or remitted. Uh, And so if a debt is retained, it is bound. If it is is remitted, uh, then it is loosed. And that's the sort of language that he's using there. In the Gospel of John, I think it's a little bit clear. This power is explained when Jesus says to his disciples, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. And so that's sort of clarifying. What does Jesus mean by binding and loosing? Well, it's remitting and retaining. It's forgiving and withholding forgiveness. 
You think, wow, that's, that's what Jesus has given to the officers to do? That sounds like a lot of power. Yeah, it is. I would point out, though, it's important to notice that all the verbs in these two passages are perfect. It really is, shall be bound and shall be loosed, are forgiven and are withheld. They're all in the perfect tense, and if you're not a grammarian, what does that mean? It means that when we do these things, we're doing them because they're already done in heaven. Uh, and that's why we, we use the language of ministerial and declarative power when it refers to church discipline. Uh, all we're doing is, is saying what God has already said. If you don't repent, you're not forgiven. If you don't repent, you, you, you do not enter the kingdom of God. And so church discipline is really just declaring uh, ministerially what is already true uh, by God's word uh, as it is in heaven. And so it's on account of these texts that we maintain that the power of these keys is the power of church discipline. Uh, when officers of Christ's church use the keys uh, of his kingdom to conduct church discipline, they are using their ministerial power to declare on earth what is the will of God already accomplished in heaven. And it goes on to define several of these things as we've kind of referenced to already. Uh, the power to retain or remit sin, that is if you, if you do not repent, uh, you are not forgiven. And it goes on, uh, the power to shut the kingdom of God against the impenitent. And it, it defines how that is. In, in what way is this power exercised? Well, it says two ways. Uh, it's exercised by the word, that is through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Uh, that's a discriminating act. Uh, we're calling pe- people to repent and believe and to obey Jesus and so that's an act of church discipline. It's sort of the, we don't tend to think of church discipline that way, but every time we are in the gathered worship service or in a prayer meeting like this with a Bible study, we are being disciplined by the Word. Uh, it's the, 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 the least form of discipline. It's not really a censure, but it is a form of discipline. We're being made disciples. Uh, but the second way, uh, this is what we tend to think of in terms of church discipline, is this by censures, admonitions, uh, by censures it says in this paragraph, which the next paragraph or the paragraph after will define as admonitions, suspensions from the Lord's Supper, and excommunication. That's t- typically what we're thinking about when we're talking about discipline. Uh, we're thinking about strong rebukes, uh, maybe privately, maybe publicly. Uh, then we're talking about temporary suspension from the Lord's Supper if you've sinned and, and you've not responded to those rebukes, then, then you're suspended from the Lord's Supper for a time with the hope that you will repent uh, by, by being put out from those sacraments. And then finally, the, the, the most severe, the, the most severe uh, form of church discipline is that of excommunication. And so uh, that's sort of what, where you go if you don't respond to those lesser forms of discipline. The end of it uh, is that you are put out from the church uh, and you are no longer regarded uh, as a Christian. This is all lined out in texts like Matthew 18 and throughout the pastoral epistles, uh, this idea that if somebody refuses to repent or to uh, have nothing to do with him, uh, that he may be ashamed. Uh, elsewhere it says um, uh, that we are deliver, uh, to deliver this man, speaking of Paul in Corinth, uh, speaking of the, the man who was incestuously involved with his mother-in-law, uh, we are to deliver him unto Satan. That's the, the textual basis uh, for these forms of excommunication. And it's important to note, though, and we'll, we'll see this in a moment, the goal of these censures, whether admonition or suspension from the Lord's Supper or excommunication, is always uh, 
at least in part, the restoration of the sinner. What we're always praying for in church discipline is that people will repent and turn back to Jesus and and walk uh, with him. And so that's our prayer. I want to highlight the important word here in this paragraph, though, from a historical perspective, is this word both. Notice it is uh, that they are to be both by the word and censures. And the reason for this word is because the Erastians would argue that church censures, uh, especially uh, uh, not being allowed to take the Lord's Supper uh, and especially excommunication, uh, were powers that were within the hand, not of church officers distinctively, uh, but also in the hands of the civil magistrate. And so, you know, if you uh, did something that the civil government didn't like, uh, they would presume to have the authority uh, to perhaps revoke your church membership or to keep you from the Lord's table. Uh, Certainly that is not a biblical uh, view. Uh, Censures, suspension from the Lord's Supper, excommunication, they do not belong to the civil magistrate, uh, but to uh, the officers of the church. You may think that sounds like a lot of power for Christ to put in the hands of men. And you're right, uh, which is, as I've said, why the Bible emphasizes uh, character requirements uh, for officers. It's not a position to be uh, given lightly. But the scriptures do plainly teach that Christ has given such power to his officers. And when church discipline, this is the important part, when church discipline is conducted in accordance with God's word, as occasion shall require those who are disciplined have every reason to believe that the Lord has done what has been declared. It's a very serious matter. Uh, when, When a brother admonishes you informally and you and you're legitimately in sin, and you do not repent, and then he comes with two or more, and you still don't repent, and then he brings it to the officers as representatives of the church, and you still do not repent. And then the session uh, admonishes you as a session, and you refuse yet still to repent, and they suspend you from the Lord's Supper, and uh, eventually they excommunicate you. At that point, you have no legitimate grounds If they've done it according to Scripture, you have no legitimate grounds to to reckon yourself a believer at that point. You have been put out as an unbeliever. And until you repent and until you are reconciled, you have no hope of salvation. Excommunication, being put out of the church, is a very serious matter. We should take it seriously. The flip side of this is that when we do repent... When we do receive forgiveness, when we are reconciled in the church, the opposite is true. It says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So Paul writes uh, concerning uh, perhaps that licentious man who was married to his mother-in-law or engaging in in relations with his mother-in-law. He's repented, it seems. And though he was excommunicated, he's come back to the church. And what does Paul say? He says, forgive him, comfort him, that he would not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When, when sinners repent through the process of church discipline, we are to receive them back. Well, paragraph 3 answers the question, why are church censures necessary? And these last two paragraphs I'll be briefer with. Uh, 
it tells us, I'll just read this. This is plain language. It really requires little explaining. Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren. That's what I've just been talking about. But it's not just for the reclaiming of, of, of the offending brethren. It's also for the deterring of others from like offenses. One of the reasons we do church discipline is so that as you see church discipline being done, you are warned from doing the same sins. Somebody cheats on their wife or on their husband. Somebody uh, abuses their spouse or their children. Somebody uh, uh, does some whatever sin, put, put, put whatever sin you can imagine. And then we discipline on it. And that is meant to warn you not to engage in the same conduct. Conversely, if we don't discipline, what happens if the church doesn't exercise church discipline? Everybody sees what these people are doing. They copy them because they say, hey, there's no consequences. The church doesn't care, which is why we should do church discipline for deterring others from like offenses. Also for the purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump. People sin and they go unpunished and then that that sin spreads throughout the church, whether factuousness or... Uh, sexual immorality, you can take your pick. But it's also for the vindicating of the honor of Christ. Uh, it says elsewhere in the scripture, why do the, the, Gentiles, uh, blaspheme, the, the Gentiles blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ uh, be, because of the, the godless conduct uh, of certain Christians, right? And so when we don't walk as Christians ought to walk, it gives reason for people to blaspheme God, and God deserves all glory. And so in order to prevent God from being dishonored uh, by unchristian conduct, we practice church discipline. It's also for the holy profession of the gospel, uh, for preventing the wrath of God, uh, corporate sin especially. Somebody sins in the camp in the Old Testament, right, and God swallows entire groups of people alive, right? Uh, there's, there's, in the army, lots of corporate discipline. Uh, well, in the church, there's corporate discipline. And so to protect the people of God from that uh, wrath that comes upon them for unrepentant sin, we are to put uh, unrepentant sinners out of the church which might justly fall upon the church, if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. So we are not to let people uh, partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily. Uh, We are not to let them profane uh, these things in this way. Lastly, how should censures be administered? There's an order to these things. Very simply, it says, for the better attaining of these ends, so in order that church discipline would have its proper effect, the vindication of Christ, uh, the reclamation of the sinner, all these things, the officers of the church are to proceed by admonition, suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for a season. No, it's for a season. It's not, you don't suspend people permanently from the Lord's Supper. If, if, the, if they've done something that merits that, they should just be excommunicated because that's functionally what you're doing. Uh, and for that reason, actually, the Lord's Supper is called a, a lesser form of excommunication, uh, suspension from it. Uh, by excommunication from the church being the most serious one. And it says, it's, this is the important part here as we, as we wrap up this last part. According to the nature of the crime and the demerit of the person. And, and so not all sins are equal. Not all sins are the same. I know you hear that all the time in our, our culture. You know, it's, one sin is, sin is the same as the other. And it's true, all sin merits death, but not all sins are equally heinous. Some sins are worse than others because they're sins more directly against God or they're more contrary to nature or they are committed by more eminent people. If a pastor sins uh, as a public person, as a, an officer in the church, it's a much more serious thing than if a, if a, a regular member sins. If a president sins, Uh, compared to a regular person. It's more serious because their position is higher. Uh, And so not all sins are equal, and some sins require uh, more serious treatment. Uh, Especially here, sins that are sinned publicly need to be dealt with publicly. 
Uh, when, when somebody is slandering and, and causing factions within the church, uh, Paul is very clear that that's to be dealt with publicly. And so we don't brush public sins under the private carpet. Uh, we are to deal with public sins publicly. Uh, more serious sins may require uh, immediately going to more serious censures. If somebody is unrepentant uh, and he's an unrepentant murderer, you don't just, you know, you need to repent of your murder. Yes, do that, but it's not just a verbal admonition. If, you, if you're murdering people, if you are uh, uh, committing adultery, it's not just a, an admonition and then we'll see how it goes. Uh, sometimes there is an immediate need uh, for the lesser form of excommunication from the Lord's Supper. Sometimes there is an immediate need, if there is no repentance and it's so serious, they are to be put out of the church uh, immediately. Uh, and again, that's for the vindication of Christ's honor. We, we've seen this play out in our own denomination uh, as of late over the issues of, of side B, gay, Christianity. Uh, what, what dishonor has been brought onto God's church that for so many years we failed to discipline that man. We are to deal with these sins, public sins especially, uh, seriously, uh, depending, it says, on the nature of the crime and the demerit of the person. A lesson review, who governs the church? Very simply, Jesus and his officers, not the Pope. Certainly we don't want to trade the Pope for a prince or a president or a congress uh, or any other sort of civil magistrate. Jesus Christ is head of his church. He rules it and governs it. He's put that government, that power of that government into uh, the hands of his officers. What power do church officers have? Uh, The keys of the kingdom to forgive and to not forgive, to admit and not to admit, all according to the Scripture, according to the revealed will of God, uh, and it's declarative and ministerial. They're doing it after it's already a reality in heaven. They're doing it on earth, but it's real power, and they're, they're really doing this, uh, and so it's a serious matter. Why are church censures necessary? To reclaim sinners, to deter others from sinning, to purify the church so that it doesn't fall uh, into uh, uh, further sin, uh, to vindicate Christ's honor because he is honorable and he expects us to, to conduct ourselves in a way that will bring him honor and not dishonor, uh, the prevention of wrath. When church discipline is not conducted, uh, then we do not find these benefits. And in fact, we find the opposite. We see sinners not being reclaimed. We see them not being deterred from sin. We see them not being put out of the church. The church becomes corrupt more and more. And Christ's honor is not vindicated. It's how important it is that we practice biblical church government and discipline. How should censures be administered? Admonition, suspension, excommunication, depending on the nature of the sin and the severity of it. Next week, we have Easter, so there'll be no Wednesday activities. But next, next week, we will have uh, on synods and councils. And I think that brings us basically to the end of the doctrine of the church and the confession of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which instructs us on how to order your church. Lord, we thank you that you have given apostles and teachers and prophets. And now, Lord, you have given us elders in our churches. We thank you for the many godly elders we have who labor to govern the church and also care for the sheep. And we pray, Lord, that you would... Give us a wisdom uh, to discipline and to be disciplined, Lord. I, I pray that your word would have good effect in the lives of your people through preaching and teaching and Bible studies, uh, that they would be deterred from sin and these other things. Uh, but, Lord, when they are not, 
uh, when the Word uh, does not do these things in their lives. I pray that the session would boldly and courageously act uh, to discipline uh, according to censure uh, and suspension and even excommunication if necessary. Would you vindicate the honor of Christ through these things and accomplish all your purposes? Pray also for our denomination as we deal with these issues from time to time uh, that you would help us uh, to act wisely and not uh, delay unduly uh, the enacting of church discipline, Lord. And Lord, finally, I pray that as we go from this place, uh, you would be glorified in all we say and all we do. Help us to conduct our lives as those who are disciples. Help us to walk in the discipline of the Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.